Good morning. What's going on, Village Church? My name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's as always, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, we are three weeks into a new sermon series. We're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're calling this series The Meaninglessness of Life. It should be a fun morning. We, we'll see a bunch of different ways that, 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 that life is meaningless without the meaning maker. But in order to reach that conclusion, we'll see various things in life put to the test. A couple weeks ago, we saw wisdom put to the test. And this week, we're going to be looking at self-indulgence and pleasure. And the question that we're going to, ask, that we're going to see asked is whether pleasure is the answer to the meaninglessness of life. Can pleasure give life meaning? Is self-indulgence the ultimate good? In a lot of ways, this is extremely applicable to us today. We don't need anyone to teach us that self-indulgence and pleasure feels good. We don't need anyone to teach us uh, that these things feel good. I see it in my son's eyes whenever he has a piece of candy. Further, it doesn't take us very long before we learn the lesson that things and experiences are the quickest way to this pleasure and self-indulgence. And at a very young age, the chase begins. The chase for things to make us happy. I, I, in high school, I had, I had a really wealthy friend. His name was Mike. And I distinctly remember going to Mike's house for the first time. He had these massive front doors that opened to what seemed like paradise. Mike had a huge pool and a jacuzzi. Mike's house was a little higher up on the mountain, so in his backyard had, he had these incredible views. Mike's house had an outdoor built-in grill and a basketball court and every gaming system that was known to man. He had tons of video games. Mike was so rich that he had rooms in his house that nobody used. All of his toys worked. I don't know if that's deep. And in my 13-year-old mind, that's how you knew you made it. Mike's family had made it. Man, if I could just live like Mike, if I could just live in the house that he had, and if I could just have the things that he had, everything would be all right in the world. Now, over the years, the image of Mike's house would fade, but it left an imprint in my heart, a placeholder. Because over the years, there would be other things, other experiences that I would long for, that would occupy that spot in my heart that Mike's house left behind. Things that I thought that if I could just get this thing, I would be more than okay. I would be fulfilled. And I don't think I need to explain this any further because I know you know what I'm talking about. The book of Ecclesiastes revolves around a man that refers to himself as the preacher and his attempt to find meaning and significance in life apart from God. And this morning, we're going to see him put self-indulgence and pleasure to the test. Let's check it out. Verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So for us, pleasure typically implies more of a sensual, seedy type of undertone, but that's not what's meant here. The word for pleasure, the same word that's used for joy later in this chapter. So this includes physical pleasure to be sure, but it's not limited to that. He's pursuing joy. He's pursuing delight. But notice the subject of his test. He's speaking to his own heart. This is an internal dialogue. And he says he will test himself with pleasure. So for a season, he's going to do whatever it, it makes him feel good. Because he wants to see if that changes the meaninglessness of his own life. 
He's missing something. He's missing ultimate satisfaction. He's missing a reason for living. And he's looking to pleasure to provide that meaning. In the absence of the God of the universe, how well does pleasure take his place? He's testing the human philosophy of hedonism. And it's no less than him erecting an altar in his heart to worship the idol of self-indulgence. And I know many of us know this, but I still think it's worth mentioning. The Bible tells us that idols are not just little statues that we worship. The reality of idolatry is much broader and much more, more covert. Simply put, an idol is anything you look for to provide you something that only God can give. So in his search for meaning, he has exchanged God for pleasure and made pleasure his God, thinking the best thing for him to do, for him to fill his life with, are only the things that make him feel good. Now, this is a cultural idol, and what I mean by that is this idea is so ingrained in the way that we think that we don't even realize that it's there. Almost everything around us is telling us that the best use of our time is to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. It's been said that we see or hear anywhere from 4,000 to 10,000 ads every single day. That's 4,000 to 10,000 times we are promised that we can make our lives just a little bit better if we buy something, if we experience something, if we own something, if we consume something. And some of these things don't even make sense. Home Depot would have me believe that the thing that's missing in my life, that thing that I need to make me happy, subway tile backsplash. And they show me a picture of this perfect young couple standing and smiling and hugging each other, looking at it like it's their firstborn child. And I walk into my kitchen, and all I see is paint and wallpaper and water stains. No wonder I feel pointless. This stuff often makes absolutely no sense. But it doesn't need to. All it needs to do is promise us that we'll be a little bit happier if we have it. And if you try to live life without the true God, another false God will take its place, take his place. And false gods are horrible at keeping their promises. Self-indulgence pushes God out of the picture and tries to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in what he has made. The question this passage presents to us is, can pleasure replace the God of the universe? Maybe if I just did whatever made me feel good, I would find ultimate satisfaction. And to answer this question, the preacher looks at himself in the mirror and whispers, treat yourself. <laughs> and he puts, he puts pleasure to the test. And as Pastor David pointed out a couple weeks ago, um, this, he, in this, he has this unique ability to test this further and better than we can. He can go way further down the road of pleasure than we could ever dream. He had the means to thoroughly put this idea to the test. We'll see that when he treats himself, he plants forests and digs lakes and hires musicians. When I treat myself, I go to Walmart and I buy a box of ice cream sandwiches. And I take two of those ice cream sandwiches and I sandwich them together with peanut butter. (laughs) And I rejoice and I eat it slowly. What I can only test in part, he can test in full. And here he's going to go as far down the road as he can, and he's going to yell back to us with the results. And right at the outset, he tells us what he found. Nothing. 
It's vanity and explains it further. Let's pick it up, verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? He says that laughter is mad and pleasure has no use. Looking more closely at these two words, commentators will say that the word here for laughter refers to a more superficial pleasure. I think I could be a funny guy. I think I can have my moments. But, but 90% of the humor that I meticulously and, and cleverly craft for the kids' classes goes completely unnoticed. <laughs> but you know what slays every time? Poop emojis. <laughs> and it seems to work here, too. I don't even have to say anything. I just put it on the screen, screen, and the kids just will erupt in laughter. It's silly, it's crude, it's superficial, and it's the type of enjoyment that the preacher's getting at here. Shallow indulgence. Again, here, the word for pleasure, on the other hand, refers to a more complex form of indulgence. It's a deep delight. The type of joy or pleasure you get from hearing your child laugh from the first time. It's deep, it's intense, and it's complex. He's saying that he tasted both crude fun and refined delights and found them both to be lacking. Saying laughter is folly and pleasure was pointless. But if you pause here, and when you put this together with chapter one, you start to see something really interesting. A couple weeks ago, we saw him in search of that meaning through wisdom. He sought out wisdom to provide life significance and satisfaction, and the results weren't good. And he came to the conclusion that wisdom, as, as wisdom increased, so did vexation and sorrow. The more I know about the world around me, the sadder I get. And his response to that, is to give himself over to pleasure. And with that, this verse takes more of a somber tone. Shortly after we moved down to Orange County, almost 10 years ago at this point, my wife and I had got into one of the biggest arguments we'd ever had. And I remember sitting by myself alone in the living room full of regret and shame and sadness and worry. And you know what I did? I went to McDonald's and bought two double cheeseburgers and a small fry. I came back to my living room, and I sat by myself, and I ate it. You want to know why? Because I thought it'd make me feel better. It, it was a little bit of pleasure in the middle of a whole lot of sorrow. And the suggestion is in this passage that the preacher is attempting to medicate the futility and the sadness of life through self-indulgence. And I think if we're honest, we all would say that we've tried this at least one point in our lives. Life is hard. So I need something to make me feel better. Maybe it's endlessly scrolling through social media. Maybe it's binge-watching TV. Maybe it's video games. Maybe it's filling your Amazon cart with things that you don't need just for a rush of pleasure that gives you a small break from the grief or anxiety that you find yourself in. The preacher says he's tried it. In the long run, it's vanity. It doesn't work. Masking sorrow and futility and meaningless with quick hits of pleasure doesn't work. And we'll end up back where we started or worse. But we're going to see how the preacher starts to deal with this problem. Verse 3. He says, I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven, during the few days of their life. 
See, in his pursuit of pleasure, the first thing he turns to is alcohol. He notes that wisdom was still guiding him, means that he hasn't lost sight of the experiment. He's still very much in tune with his test, but he wanted to cheer himself up with wine. The word translated here as cheer stands out as an interesting one. Literally, the word means to pull or to drag. That's why some translation at this point will say that he's looking to sustain his body with wine. He says that he used wine to drag himself so that he could lay hold of folly till he might see what was good for the children of man to do under the sun. This doesn't sound like he tried it a few times and then he stopped. The picture that's being painted is that the preacher is so stung by the pain of the meaninglessness of life that he turns to artificial joy that alcohol provides so that he can pull himself through the futility of his own days. While he searched for something worth living for. Now this might, this might hit close to home for some of us. Life's so painful that you need to rely on substances to pull you through your days. Maybe this wasn't you before COVID, but maybe it's you now. Right? During the pandemic, alcohol sales and drug overdoses skyrocketed. Now, if this is you, I want you to know that, that where you are, you're not alone. The Bible speaks into what you're feeling. The Bible knows what, what you're going through, that God knows and sees what you're feeling, and he knows the pain of the difficulty, and he sees the struggle. And there's hope for something better. Don't, don't leave here without talking to someone about it. Grab me, grab one of the pastors. We want to know, we want to know you. We want to walk, walk alongside of you. We want to bear the burden with you because all of these things will always leave you empty. But before the preacher goes on, he restates the reason for the whole experiment. And he does it in a new way that picks up on a theme that he will turn to in other places. The reason he's on this quest is, as he says, so he might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He says he's looking for what is good for us to do on earth during the few days of our lives. The brevity of his life created a crisis with what to do with it. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll see the preacher make some poor judgments. But I don't think this is one of them. In fact, I think we would do well to follow his example in this. This is what the psalmist meant when he says in Psalm 90, 12, so teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. If the preacher is in search of a good way to spend the days that he has, the implication is that there's a, there's a bad way. He's using the brevity of his life to filter out the things that aren't important. Because the imminence of death brings an invaluable perspective. Two years ago today, my dad passed away. And so I know this from experience. A lot of things are dumb while you're watching someone die of cancer. A lot of things that we think are important become infinitely insignificant in light of death. It showed me that should the Lord tarry, that will be me one day. What am I doing now that on my deathbed I'll regret later? What am I missing now? What am I doing? What am I spending my time doing that? In the end, I'll say it was a waste of time. Death brings perspective 
it brings clarity. So couched in this phrase is a warning that we should not waste the little time that we have. That knowing we, we will die should change the way we live. I was talking to Pastor Matt about this, and he said it this way. He said we should reverse engineer our life in light of our death. I'll give you credit for that one. Maybe this is just us asking a simple question. My days are limited. Is this the way I really want to spend them? And we, we know the right answer, but, the preachers, but from the preacher's perspective, it's limited to things under heaven. So let's watch him try and figure it out. Back in the text, verses 4 through 6. He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. It's passages like this that lead people to believe that the writer of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. Because we know, what we know from Solomon's reign in 1 Kings chapter 3 through 11, he was a king that built a bunch of stuff and accumulated a bunch of stuff, dug pools and had treasures and hundreds of concubines. Solomon had a penchant for the extravagant. But whether this is Solomon or not, you see him living out this fantasy that we all might have, where we look around at the world around us and want to customize it to our liking. Look at how he's describing it. Whether it was houses or vineyards or pools or gardens or parks, he said he did it all for himself. Everything that he built was customized to him. And this is something that all of us probably have thought about. I know that if I asked you, if you could change one thing about the place you live now, you would quickly tell me five of them. That's an easy question, right? And this is where MTV Cribs has served me really well. Because it showed me that what I need in my life is a vending machine with nothing but my favorite snacks. I've seen it once on TV, and it's been my life's ambition ever since. If it's good enough for iced tea, it's good enough for me. And your thing may not be a vending machine, maybe it's something else. But regardless, I think we all can admit that we fantasize about remaking everything around us to fit what we want, what we need, or what we think we would like. He takes this fantasy and he makes it a reality. And it's not just with homes. He planted vineyards and gardens and parks and every type of fruit you can imagine. He dug pools to water the forest he planted. And in all this, seeking pleasure through buildings and achievements and great feats of construction. Let's keep going. Verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Now, there's a shift in the experiment, and you can, you can tell there's a shift because there's a shift in the verbs. Look, verses 4 through 6, he says, I made, I built, I planted. Verse 7 and 8, he says, I bought, I had, I gathered, I got. In his self-indulgence, he shifted away from seeking pleasure through building and creation to pleasure through accumulation. He didn't just own a person, he owned an entire family. It wasn't just a cow, it was a herd. It wasn't just a few pieces of gold and silver. It was a treasure trove of riches and wealth. 
It was many singers and many concubines. This is an image of a man that wasn't content with just one. He sought pleasure through getting more of what he already had. And this is one of the reasons self-indulgence is so deceiving because it keeps us just wanting just a little bit more. It tells us that if we, we aren't satisfied with what we have, the answer must be that we don't have enough of it. A few years ago, I was out on, on the front patio grilling, and my daughter, who was like five at the time, uh, came outside, and she was hanging out with me. And for her whole life, we'd either lived in small condos or small apartments. And I'm cooking, and she, she looks to me and says, Papa, I have an idea. You know how we have space in the front of the house where we can hang out and cook? Um, what if we had space behind the house where we could hang out and cook? and we can put a pool and stuff. And I looked at her and I laughed and said, uh, someone already thought that up. They're called backyards. And in that moment, I thought, if I could just give my kids a backyard, if I could just give them the space that they need, I would be satisfied. We have a backyard now. And so now when I walk out, I'm like, man, just a little bit more space. Just a, fences that are a little bit further back. Just a little bit more space to run. Then, then I'd be satisfied. See, with the promise of pleasure just beyond our reach, we will chase it for our entire lives. And as I was studying this passage, I read a few commentaries. And in two of them at this passage, there was the same quote. And it wasn't from Calvin or Luther, and it wasn't from Keller or Carson. It was from a popular cartoon. And it, one of the characters says, you know, Mr. Burns, you're the richest guy I know. Another replied, oh yes, but I would trade it all in for a little bit more. So we could spend our whole lives and hope that all we need is just a little bit more, and it's a trap that fools you into thinking that ultimate satisfaction is just a tiny bit further. And this passage shows us that if we aren't satisfied with what we have now, we won't be satisfied with it when we get more. So in this section, we saw the preacher seek pleasure through creation, changing the world around him to fit his needs. And then he sought pleasure through excess, accumulating more stuff and more experiences than we can ever imagine. And starting in verse 9, let's take a look at the results. He says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. With all that he did and accumulated, he became the greatest man to ever live in Jerusalem. He went further down the road of self-indulgence and pleasure than anyone before him. He exercised absolutely no restraint. Any things he saw that he wanted, he got. Again, it tells us wisdom still guiding him. He means he, he's very calculated in how he's doing this. He's keeping in his mind the experiment that he's conducting. And what's interesting about this is that in these verses, it sounds like success. He says his heart found pleasure in all his toil. This reads like an accomplishment. When I was just out of college, I started serving youth ministry. And the youth pastor said something during one of his sermons that has stuck with me to this day. He looked at all the kids in the room and he said, sin is fun. And everyone gasped. Because we didn't know you could say that in church. He said, sin is fun. Then he said, if sin wasn't fun, it wouldn't be a problem. 
as a preacher reflects on all of his covetousness and greed and all those seedy parties and debauchery, he says it was a good time. Here the Bible is being super honest. It's being true to life. It's not trying to convince you that pleasure isn't pleasurable. It's not lying to you saying that self-indulgence doesn't feel good. Of course it feels good. If it didn't, it wouldn't be attractive. But the preacher says that this, in this, his heart found pleasure in his toil. But he also tells us that pleasure isn't the ultimate purpose. Let's read it, verse 11. It says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and, all the, to- and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says that he considered. This is like the morning after. After everything he built and accumulated and experienced, he walked out to his balcony, surveyed all that he had made, and said it was all vanity, it was all meaningless, it was all a waste of time. Now, it's not meaningless because he didn't get the pleasure he was looking for. The issue isn't that he couldn't find pleasure. The issue is that he found pleasure and realized it was empty. That's a much more devastating reality. We've all experienced it. We hold something in our minds that we think will be the end of our need, and then we get it, and it doesn't live up to the hype. Do you realize that our landfills are filled with things that people thought would satisfy them that just ended up being thrown out? Why? Why do the things we long to have us have leave us feeling as empty as we were before them? I think the text drops a hint. Looking back at verses 4 through 8, scholars uh, will start to see parallels in the language and the words here with the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. There's a cluster of Hebrew words here, a cluster of phrases in these four verses. To plant, garden, all kinds of fruit trees, irrigate, sprout, do, and make. Each of these words taken individually aren't all that significant, but when they're collectively considered, they create an allusion to creation. This means that as the preacher's on his quest for self-indulgence, he's trying to create his own Garden of Eden. He builds his world in verses 4 through 6, and then he populates it with life in verse 7 and 8. This is his story of creation, where he is God. This shows us self-indulgence for what it is. He thought that the best way to achieve meaning was to make life only about him. He's at the center of his own story. So he creates his own little world solely for his pleasure, and we can be tempted to do and pursue the same. If I can just reshape everything around me the way I want it to be, if my spouse just did everything I wanted them to do, if my kids just acted the way I wanted them to act, if I had my dream job only doing what I wanted to do, then we'll be satisfied, then we'll be happy, then we'll be fulfilled. Our own little kingdoms built around our own little preferences on our own little islands of paradise. And I think without even realizing it, this is what we're after. This is why we work and save and plan and toil. These are the things that we daydream about. But the main problem with self-indulgence is that it assumes that you can satisfy you. I think that there's something you can give your, it, it, it thinks that there's something you can give yourself or, or, get, or do for yourself or accomplish that will finally give your life meaning and purpose. A lot of us can only dream about it, but the preacher actually accomplished it. And yet he walked out into the middle of it, his personalized paradise, and said it wasn't enough. It was empty. Because 
in his attempt to recreate Eden, someone was missing. As incredible as Eden was, without God, it's just a garden. We can taste every pleasure that the world has to offer. We can experience every good thing there is to experience. We can accumulate more wealth and more possessions than you can ever dream. But without God, it will all be empty because you cannot satisfy you. Because life is meaningless without the meaning maker. All pursuit of pleasure without God will be found to be lacking. That's why he says in verse 11 that there's nothing to be gained under the sun. And he's absolutely right. This tells us that if we're looking for pleasure to satisfy, if we're giving ourselves over to self-indulgence, hoping that in it we'll find something worth living for, we're looking in the wrong place. Here's a a good place for a very well-known C.S. Lewis quote. We find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. In Christ, we have something that's not under the sun. All this reminds me of the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus meets this woman coming to a well to draw water. And he asks her for some water. The woman, shocked because she's a Samaritan and Jewish men had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus responds by saying that if she knew who he was, she would be asking him for living water. Puzzled. She asked him, how can you get this water? You don't have anything to draw the water with. It's a deep well. And Jesus tells her that anyone who drinks from the water of this well will be thirsty again. But if she drank, if she drank the living water that he offers, she would never thirst again. And through the course of the conversation, it comes to light that the woman was on her sixth husband. And all of a sudden, we realize that Jesus wasn't just talking about water. The woman was thirsting for something, and she moved from relationship to relationship, trying to quench her thirst. And Jesus gently shows her that the things that she's pursuing will never satisfy, and she'll end up back at the well. She'll never find meaning in them, and he offers her something that will keep her from needing anything else, himself. So the question that we have to ask is what well are we drawing from hoping to find satisfaction? Maybe you're here and you haven't even realized that you're thirsty. Maybe you've tried sex and relationships but you're still thirsty. Maybe you tried alcohol but you're still thirsty. Maybe you tried a new home and cars and spouses and jobs and you're still thirsty. Jesus is showing us this morning that it will never work and it's offering us something that satisfies forever. We talked a lot about how we can have everything we think will make us happy, and without God, it's not enough. But the inverse is also true. It means that we can have absolutely nothing, but if we have God, we have more than enough. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the Bible because it takes an honest look at life and shows us that so much of what we strive for is meaningless, And though painful, it frees me to pursue something that when it's my time to lay on my deathbed, I won't regret. And that's good news. It's simple. The pleasure we have in Jesus frees us from the fruitless pursuit of pleasure everywhere else. So maybe in light of this, it's time for us to reconsider the things that we're chasing. The 
to think deeply about the things that we're pursuing. Maybe we're spending a lot of energy and effort trying to create our own personal paradise. And if that's you, maybe it's time to rest. It's time to to end the chase for more stuff or better experience. Maybe it's time for you to stop chasing the next thing that's promising to make your life just a little bit better. Maybe it's time for some freedom from the restlessness of wanting more. And I'll leave you with this quote from St. Augustine from his confessions. He's speaking to God and he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So maybe instead of exhausting ourselves for toiling more, we rest in the commitment of the salvation, rest in the contentment of the salvation we have in Christ. And if God chooses us to bless us with more, we receive it with glad and thankful hearts. But if he doesn't, we rejoice in the pleasure of knowing that we still have all that we need. Let's pray for that. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, in them. Although sobering and, and, a, and a bit somber at times, Father, I thank you for, for your word here in Ecclesiastes. I thank you for, for laying bare all the fruitless joys that we could pursue and all the fruitless pleasures that we could pursue and all the fruitless ambitions that we might have. It just feels like you're just going into our, our closet of idols and just burning everything to the ground. And it's uncomfortable at times, Father, but it's good. And I thank you for it, Father. I, I lift up our hearts. I lift up everyone here, Lord, that we would learn to, to number our days and, and live, in life, live life in light of the fact that, that's, that it's short. And I pray that we'd spend our time pursuing things that matter, pursuing things that are good. And I pray that we would rejoice deeply in the things that you have given us with contentment, and that we receive gladly the things that you're giving us. But ultimately, Father, I pray that you would be our prize, that you would be our, our goal, that you would be our ambition, that you would be our pursuit, and that we'd find ultimately our pleasure in you, that you would be at the core of everything that we enjoy, knowing that we have a good Father in heaven that, that rejoices in its giving. And pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.